Well, good morning. It is our practice on the first Sunday of the month to celebrate communion. So we take the elements that Jesus gave to us, the bread and the cup, that point us to his death, and we uh, set them out that we might use them during the service as a means by which we can draw near to God and enjoy fellowship with him and with each other. Now, when we celebrate communion, I often remind you of the words that were spoken on that occasion. They're recorded in three of the Gospels. And then about 20 years later, they're recorded by the Apostle Paul in teaching the church in Corinth. And when Paul records the words that were spoken at the Last Supper or the last Passover that was celebrated by Jesus, he adds something to it. At the end, after he gives the order of the things that happen, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, those words, until he comes, indicate to us that this is meant to be a practice for Christian people, and it's been a practice within churches, until that point when Christ returns, because it's a distinct teaching of the Bible that Jesus is going to return. Now, this morning, we'd like to think about that. That's uh, the subject of the passage that was read to us. And, and while you turn to that, I just want to note that there are some different ideas that are prevalent about the afterlife today. Americans are very religious in general, though that's uh, decreasing as time goes on. But there's always been a strong belief that there's something after this life that's going to come. Unfortunately, certain ideas that are held are sometimes confused with the teaching of the Bible. And you might find even today that maybe you have some misunderstandings about what is going to happen when Christ returns. Now, let me just note the four different common ideas that people have. The first one is called materialism. Materialism teaches that uh, matter, physical things, are all that exist. This is what I was taught as a child, that uh, your body is made up of chemicals that have come and are found in the earth, and they come together in a certain way. And at the end of your life, when you die, uh, all of those chemicals just return back. Materialism teaches that there is nothing immaterial. There's nothing that can't be seen or felt or touched about a human being. But you might say, well, of course, I have emotions. I feel love for another person, whatever. Those aren't material things. But materialism says, well, in fact, they are. They are just a combination of chemicals in your brain acting in a certain way and reacting in a certain way. And, and so you have these things that you call feelings. Now, materialism is increasing in the United States. And the reason, obviously, is that in a generation where technology is considered to be a godlike power, technology is going to change everything and make all of life better, obviously materialism would have a greater draw. There's another view that's uh, common called reincarnation. This one has not been uh, common historically, but it's increasing, and it comes more from Eastern philosophy. It's the idea that there is something eternal about a human being, but you are found in a form at this time, and if you do well in this life, then when you die, you'll come back in a higher form. If you don't do well in this life, you'll come back in a lower form, and that life is always progressing, is meant to be progressing upward, though it may take millions and millions of years for a person to progress to the highest level. Now, uh, reincarnation, again, is not something that is commonly uh, taught, but you're all aware of it. You know what it is because it is more 
common in the United States, particularly coming from the West Coast than here. There's another one that is probably the most common view held in the United States, and I would call it spiritualism. That's a little bit vague, but it's based on Greek philosophy uh, that has deeply influenced the Western world, and this one gets confused with Christian faith. Spiritualism teaches that there is a dualism between matter and spirit, that all of life is made up of material and immaterial parts. Dualism says that spirit is good. It's what really matters for eternity. Matter is either bad, to be avoided, physicalness, or it is just indifferent. Like, it doesn't matter what you do with your body because all that's going to last forever is the spirit. Now, that is probably the most common view, and it's, it leads to the common Greek idea that, that when you die, you just live sort of a shadowy existence after that of spirit. And then there's Christian faith. That's what we want to think about. This passage outlines clearly uh, what is going to happen after this life. It's brief. It doesn't tell you everything you want to know about the end times and all that sort of thing. But it tells you what is going to happen to you as a person. Now, I want to read the first sentence because it, it's really necessary to understand what the whole subject is. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, apparently, the church in Thessalonica was grieving over something, and Paul says, I want to write to correct a misunderstanding. The misunderstanding specifically is about those who have fallen asleep. And that is a polite way of saying believers who have died. Now, what had happened, if you read uh, the book of Acts, is that the Apostle Paul, in traveling across Turkey, came into what is now northern Greece to a, a city that is presently called Thessaloniki and was called Thessalonica. In that city, he preached the gospel in a synagogue. And there was a great response, both from Jewish people, and it also says from Greek people who had been interested in Judaism. It doesn't tell us that a church formed. The account is very short. What it says is that after some period of time, there was an uproar in the city against Paul's teaching. And prominent people forced him out of the city and took the uh, leader of the synagogue, who had become a Christian and was apparently the leader now of a Christian gathering, uh, they, they beat him. Paul went on to the next city, and in the next city, at Berea, he preached the gospel. And it says the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were true. So you have the impression that Berea would have been a better place to minister. But the interesting thing is Paul never writes a letter to Berea. He wrote a letter to the believers in Thessalonica. So the account is very short, and it tells us that Paul was there for a relatively short period of time. Now, Paul's missionary methods were fascinating, and they were so different than what people use today. It's always a challenge. Paul would come into a place with uh, himself and a group of co-workers who were like part of his apostolic band, his ministry. He would begin to preach the gospel in the synagogues, and if that weren't available, in the open square. And then he would start to gather people, and as people became Christians, were confirmed in their faith through baptism, he would form a church. But all that he would do is he had a series of teachings, apparently, we gather, that he would go through that would ground them in the most important things they needed to do. 
uh, you need to understand about their relationship with God, about forgiveness, about the fellowship of the Christian church, about the participation of every person who is involved, their responsibilities, and about the Christian hope, the destiny, what was going to happen after this life. And then he would move on. He would leave at a point where no church planter would leave today. And he would entrust these people to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he'd leave a worker there like Timothy or Titus or someone else. And uh, other times he would take everyone with him. They'd go on to the next city. But he would periodically send people back. Sometimes he would visit himself. And eventually, when the church was strengthening itself, he would appoint elders from among their number. And a fully organized church would be formed at that point. Now, what happened in Thessalonica was that he was kicked out and he was not able to finish his course of teaching. And apparently something that he had not instructed them uh, carefully about was about the return of Christ and what was going to happen. So not having the information that they needed, there in the church after a time, some of the believers died. And when they died... The, the remaining members wondered what has happened to those who have died in Christ. They hadn't been taught about that. Their Greek background would have told them that they'd gone to Hades, where there is a shadowy existence in a disembodied state. And uh, sometimes people in the Greek idea would come out and would talk to people, but they had, by the way, to drink blood, like in the Iliad or the Odyssey, in order to have enough embodiment to be able to reveal themselves to living people. They didn't have any idea what were going to happen to the believing dead. What if they had missed the return of Christ? And so Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep, that is, those who have died in Christ, so that you won't grieve as others do, who have no hope. And he's now going to answer the question, what happens to believing people when they die? He's also going to answer the question, what will happen to living believers when Christ returns and they have not died? There are four things that happen. You might have heard of all of these, but it's important to hear them and put them together in the way that the Bible does. Otherwise, you'll confuse Christianity was some kind of vague dualism of body and spirit. Now, the first thing he clearly says is that Christ will return. He says in verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, if God is going to bring with him people who have died, that means that those people are with him. So Christ is going to return himself, and he's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep. But the point he makes clearly here is that Christ himself is going to return. And when Jesus left the earth, you may know in the book of Acts, after his death and his resurrection, his appearance and teaching of the apostles for 40 additional days in his resurrection body, he appeared to them one final time, before he ascended into heaven. And it says that those who were present watched him go up into the clouds and go into the heavenly regions. He was seen no more. Now, the Bible tells us that Christ is going to come back in the same way in which he left. That is, it will be physical in his physical body, though glorified. Something happened after the resurrection when he returned to the presence of God. His body was glorified. More about the glorified body in a moment. 
So he will return in his physical body. He will return visibly in the clouds as he left. And he will return to this earth from which he left. Now, I remember when I first became a Christian and I was talking with my grandfather about the resurrection of Christ. And my grandfather said, now, why is it important to believe that Christ physically rose from the dead? He said, couldn't it just be that Christ rose in our hearts? Like believing people uh, really saw his going on, his ongoing existence as being important. And so it's like they hoped, they, they believed that maybe there would be something that went on from his, his teachings. It was like he himself was really present. Well, the problem with that view is that the Bible um, refutes it clearly. Paul says if Christ didn't really physically, literally die from the dead, then Christian faith is meaningless. You're still in your sins. You would have no way of knowing whether his death on the cross worked, whether it took, whether it was acceptable to the Father, except that he was raised from the dead as proof positive that his death for sins was acceptable. You see, there's no idea in the Bible that this resurrection of Christ was some sort of ethereal, spiritual kind of idea. Christ's uh, return is the same way. It's not simply some uh, spiritual idea that he returns in the lives of people who want to live for him. He will return, the Bible says, when God sends him back and brings with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, that's the second point in the passage. He says not only Christ will return, but the dead will be raised. Now, obviously, that's found in where it says God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. Uh, but it also says in verse 16, for the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, how do you put those two things together? Um, the fact that he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is the distinct Christian teaching. That's what is different from something else. What we believe in is the resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body. You see, some people have gotten the idea when it says people have fallen asleep in Jesus. That's simply a, a, a circumlocution, a long way of saying something simple. It means they died. But it's using it in an illustrative way, like we might say someone has passed away or has passed on. Uh, they would say it's fallen asleep because death is described as sleep. Obviously, a person who has died at least sometimes looks like they are asleep. And, and it's a way of not referring to death actually, but referring to the fact of death. A person has fallen asleep, but some people have gotten the idea what that means is that a person, when they die, their soul sleeps. They're put in the grave, and they, they do not exist until some future time at the return of Christ. And then the soul will be reawakened. That's not the teaching of the Bible. For one thing, the passage says God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. So something is coming back with Jesus. And here's what you need to understand. A human being in the Bible's perspective is made of two parts. A material part, the physical body, and an immaterial part, which is described in many ways in Scripture. It is sometimes called the spirit, sometimes the soul, sometimes other immaterial things are referred to, mind, emotions, will, things like that. 
And, and the material part and the immaterial part are a unity that God created and intends to stay together. Remember the beginning? God took from the dust of the ground and formed Adam and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The word breath and spirit are the same in Hebrew. The spirit of life. And man became a living creature. The living human being is made up of something material and something immaterial put together. That's God's intention. But what happens at death is that temporarily the body now no longer inhabited by a spirit and useful, useless, I mean, no longer able to function or do anything, is placed in the ground to which it dissolves. And the spirit or the soul returns to the presence of God. Now, I say spirit or soul because those two words are used in the Bible. And sometimes people have thought that they um, are completely different other people have thought they're completely the same, but it's obvious in Scripture that they're distinct, but they overlap in some ways. However, spirit is the word used to describe the immaterial person in relationship to God. It has a vertical sense. Generally, that is called your spirit, that immaterial part of you that is meant to relate to God, that is made alive by the Holy Spirit when a person trusts in Christ. On the other hand, the immaterial part of a human being that relates to other human beings is usually called the soul. It's the Greek word psuche, which, from which we get psychology, and it refers to a person's personality, temperament, the kind of person that they are. My soul is only capable of showing itself to you through my physical body. And so the soul inhabits the body, in fact, is connected to it in such a way that I can speak using my physical body and move, and you can pick up all kinds of cues from what I say, from my facial movements, from the things that I do with my arms and so forth. That is a, the way in which I reveal myself to other people. I can tell you how I feel inside. I can show you how I feel about you and things like that. That is the soul. But there is a material part that is either called the soul or the spirit and an immaterial part that makes up the human being. At physical death, those two things separate. Now, from the Bible's perspective, a human being was never meant to be a spirit without a body. In fact, a spirit without a body cannot show itself. Only God is most pure spirit, having neither body passions nor parts, as the Westminster Confession says. God is a spirit cannot be seen. Even he has embodied himself in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. But God is a spirit alone. However, we are meant to be a spirit-body unity. And so apparently, 2 Corinthians 5 says, God gives us a temporary spiritual dwelling when we're in his presence so that we might be in an embodied state, but it's only temporary. And God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. So what he says, secondly, first is that uh, Christ will return. Second, that the dead will be raised. Let me note, he says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This will happen when the Lord returns. He descends from heaven with a cry of command, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, what that means is that the dead body that is in the grave will be raised from the dead, transformed into a glorified state, reunited with the spirit or soul, 
and be in the presence of Jesus. That is not where the, the believing dead are now. They are in their spirit, in the presence of God, but their bodies have been placed in the ground. Now, the, the one thing about resurrection, which is distinct biblical teaching, it's really not found in other religions, is that the physical body really matters. It really is going to be raised. And you might say, well, what about bodies that have been completely destroyed? Uh, what about bodies that have been eaten by animals? What about uh, bodies that have burned up? What about bodies that have been placed in the earth so long ago that they have completely dissolved back into the elements and there would be no way to reconstitute those things? Well, the scripture describes it in a way that is very graphic and helpful, I find. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, just like you have a seed, uh, say of corn, a seed of corn is ugly, shriveled, dried up little thing. If anything looks dead, it's a seed of corn. But you take a seed of corn and you put it in the ground and you water it and the earth with the moisture begins to dissolve the seed. That is, it dies away. All of the external elements of the seed fall away. But there's something inside a seed, the germ, that springs to life in those conditions. The the body of the seed that dies and is dissolved into the elements becomes the food out of which the germ grows up. It becomes a plant, in this case, a stalk of corn, and it produces flowers and ears of corn. And Paul says, so also is the resurrection from the dead. The body that is planted, this physical body, is like an ugly seed. And it is put in the earth, and indeed it does dissolve, but there is something about it that God reconstitutes that germ, like in a seed, which is what grows up, and it produces something glorious. So Paul says, the present body is ugly, the future one is glorious. The present body is weak, it dies. The future body is unable to die. Just like you take an ugly seed and plant it in the earth, and you get a, an ear of corn, which is comparatively beautiful and useful and contains hundreds of seeds. That's the idea, that when there is this uh, return of Christ, the body will be raised, reunited with the Spirit, and in a transformed state, people will be in the presence of God. That is the Christian hope. Now, Paul answers a third question, and that is, well, what about those who are alive and remain? That is, he's going to return at some point. We don't know when it's going to be. But it says that, at that point, when Christ returns, living believers will be caught up. That's the word that's used here. Now, let me note, this whole idea about the return of Christ is probably the most ridiculed idea within Christianity. Uh, it's often made fun of in various ways. And that is natural because it was made fun of in the Bible. In Second uh, Peter, uh, Peter pictures people mocking and saying, where is this coming that he promised? For ever since the creation of the world, things have gone on as they always have. The world has existed for a long time. Nothing has changed. How can you say that Christ is going to return? He's going to transform things as we know them now. And they made fun of it then. They make fun of it now, obviously, more because more time has gone on. But the fact is, it's a very distinct and clear teaching. And it tells us not only that Christ will return and that he will bring the believing dead and reunite them to their bodies, but it says that living believers at that point will be caught up. Verse 17, then, after that, the, the order is important, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, this is where the word rapture comes from. 
Uh, people of you might have heard of the rapture. The rapture is the Latin word for caught up. I used to think, and many people think, that the word rapture refers to some kind of bliss that we're going to have when Christ returns and we're going to be caught up into his presence and we will feel this incredible bliss. Well, that probably is true. I can't imagine being brought into the presence of the creator and redeemer and not feeling something very positively emotional, but the word rapture has nothing to do with bliss. It's describing the catching up. It's the Latin word rapare, which translates the word that's used here, caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, the idea is that at the point when Christ returns, those who are still living are not going to experience death and resurrection, at least not as the dead have. They are going to be snatched up in their bodies, and at that moment, their body will be transformed into its glorified state, and so they will never experience a separation of the spirit or soul and the body. They will never be in a bit disembodied state. They will be caught up into that, in the presence of the Lord, which they are meant to have a body and a spirit, a material and immaterial part as a full, true human being as God intended from the beginning. Now, I want you to note the passage doesn't say anything about when that's going to occur. It doesn't say there's anything about the tribulation. It doesn't say whether it's going to occur at the beginning of the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, or the end of the tribulation. It doesn't even say whether there's going to be a tribulation. It doesn't say what's going to happen afterwards, whether if there's going to be a kingdom, though it's made clear he's going to return to this earth. Uh, but all it is telling us is what is our hope? Well, our hope is if we die, or for those who have died, to be brought immediately into the presence of God who will bring their spirits with him and reunite their bodies and transform them. And those who are alive and remain will be caught up and transformed in a moment and be in his presence. And then it ends with the fourth thing. And so we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Now, it doesn't give all the information you want to have. What will we be doing with the Lord? Will we be on this earth? Well, yes, we're told new heavens and new earth uh, elsewhere, but it doesn't say in this passage. What will we be doing? Well, we'll be with the Lord is all we need to know. We'll be in his presence. We won't be in some disembodied state floating around. We won't be left to deal with those things that we didn't deal with well enough in this life, like you might think of in the movie Ghost or The Sixth Sense. We won't be left behind to figure out those kinds of things and make up for whatever errors that we dealt with or revenge on those who are still living who harmed us in some way. We won't. We'll be with the Lord. Now, what that means is that at that moment of transformation, sin is finally dealt with. From the Bible's perspective, this that we're about to do is so valuable because it is until the Lord comes. It is meant to be something where we come and we bring our hearts to God. We come to God in our spirits and we recognize that we struggle in this life, in this fallen world. We struggle with two things, with sin inside of us and with sin outside of us. That is, we live in an environment and in a world that is riddled with sin so that the power structures of this world do not uh, act for our benefit, so that relationships are always struggling and sometimes breaking down. We live in a world in which there is not safety from harm, at least not without effort. And we also live in a world in which we infect 
the world's environment because we carry inside of us the seed of sin. When I was a new Christian, a person told me, uh, said, the closer you get to a bright light, the dirtier you realize you are. He was describing the Christian life. That's a description of what it means to live as a Christian throughout our earthly pilgrimage. We realize more and more that sin was a far deeper problem than we ever imagined. That sin is not simply a few things that we do wrong. It's not something that we can correct by the right kind of training or starting a new program of habits or something like that. Sin is something so deeply entwined within us that it colors everything we do and everything we are. And the more you realize that, the more redemption means something. So God gives us an opportunity in this life to have through his spirit who is present inside of us, through his word that he gives through us, and through the relationships with other Christians that we have in the family of God, he gives us the resources we need in order to reflect more and more deeply on the nature of our soul's real disease and on the cure that is offered. That's what we do when we come to the table. We reflect on the things that we have done wrong, thought, the thoughts that we have that are wrong, the ways that we treat other people at times. That, that are not pleasing to God, those things that we become more aware of as we go through life, and we recognize that Christ died for those things, that his forgiveness is real, and we apply that to ourselves more deeply, but also we come to God and we recognize that he gives to us the strength and wisdom that we need, and he meets us in the Lord's Supper in order for us to ask him for that, to empower us, that we might overcome those things. But as you go through life, a whole lifetime, even a long lifetime, would not be enough to get to the bottom of what that means because sin is like a noxious, poisonous plant whose roots are so entwined down deep around our hearts that we could never get it out. All we can do is pull the fruit off the tree on the outside and think that we're doing better. But the tree itself is poisonous. Now, what happens at either the point of resurrection or of transformation at the rapture is that God himself will finally deal with sin inside of us and around us. He will take out that noxious plant with every tentacle that is wrapped down there in the roots of our lives so that we will be with him forever in a transformed and glorified state. And then he ends by saying, that if these four things are true, Christ will return, those who have died in Christ will be raised, living believers will be caught up to be with the Lord, to return with him, and thus we will always be with the Lord. If those things are true, then he says encourage or comfort one another with these words. Now, why is this meant to be a comfort? Well, you can think obviously it was a comfort to those who thought that possibly their loved ones who had died had missed what God intended for them. We're going to be in what they thought was the afterlife, some shadowy existence somewhere with no real feeling or thought or ability to influence anything. That would be a comfort. But it's also a comfort for us today, even though most of us don't have those kinds of ideas about the afterlife. And here's the comfort. What it reminds us is this life is not all there is. That's what you ought to be doing in all of your interactions with other Christians, with your children, if you're seeking to raise them in a Christian home, with your husband or your wife, you're seeking to remind each other this life is not all there is. You don't have to grab for all the gusto you can get. Whatever you miss in this life, it doesn't mean it's missed forever. 
whatever experiences you don't have, whatever responsibilities become so overpowering that that's what you have to spend your time and your attention on and you wish you could do other things, that this life is simply meant to be a preparation for eternity, a preparation particularly of your heart, of your soul, of your spirit, to focus on those things that will matter forever. Encourage one another with these words. And as we come to the Lord's table, that's what it allows us to do. It allows us to remember and to, by participating together to focus each other's attention on this is what we look forward to until Christ comes. We look forward to the presence of his spirit inside of us, the fellowship of God's people together in which we can encourage each other to live for him, to hold fast, to be faithful despite all of the inducements around us to pull us away, all the enticements to sin, all of the responsibilities that we have that seem to bog us down. Let's pray that we will experience it in that way this morning. Again, our gracious God and Father, we thank you that you give to us your word, that we are not meant to grieve as those grieve who have no hope. We experience grief, and we should, at the death of a loved one, but the grief is because of the separation which we are told is only temporary. For those who have died in Christ will be restored, and we will meet them, we who are living, when the Lord returns. Thank you for that. Thank you that you promised to meet us even today as we come to you in the way that you gave to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.